are going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 for our scripture reading. And in honor of the reading of God's word, would you please stand? Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud. Elihud was, was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Thank you. You may be seated. Yeah, give me that. I was, <laughs> man. <laughs> yes. That's, that's how we test our readers. Uh, can you read Matthew? Side story was, we were just going to read verse 1, and I said, who's reading? Justin. Oh, but have him read the whole thing. <laughs> you can interpret that the way you want, I guess. Um, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I'm looking forward to enjoying Advent with you. Uh, of all the people in the world, I look forward to enjoying it with you. Over the next several weeks, we're going to focus on hope, peace, joy, love. And uh, we are going to have our service on Christmas morning. Through every service this, this uh, December, we are going to do communion together. One of the things that we've historically done as a church is we've done it at the last week of every month. But I'd like to increase the frequency, um, establishing patterns in our fellowship where we can take it at unique periods of time throughout the year. 
and reflect uh, as a congregation on what we have in Christ. And, uh, and uh, I think it is a good thing to take the table frequently. In light of that, um, you may have noticed we have had a new bulletin. Um, we are not going to be going through Genesis, and in your bulletin there is not a connection card. Uh, there is, however, a QR scan. If you don't know how to use those, you can use the ones. We all have the old ones back there. Um, but we would like you to know that if you want prayer from one of the elders, that you can use that to notify and let us. If you want to know more about what Nicole is doing, you can fill that out, and we can get that your information to her so she can communicate with you the things that she's doing or any of our missionaries. Um, but also, if you have questions like the Quest Springs Christmas Drive that we announced last week, it is our hope to, to adopt several families this Christmas season and just love on them by giving them gifts. You've already seen some of the gifts placed under the tree in the gathering room. If you have popped your head in there, we're thankful. Thank you for those who have already given to that. Also, if you want to join and be a part of the membership class next week, that's another way that you can notify us of your presence and your needs if you need child care. Um, and also, uh, one thing that we want to make you aware of is that through this Advent season, we gather on Christmas Eve. And when we gather on Christmas Eve, historically as a church, um, we take a lottery moon offering. Um, we'll explain over the next several weeks what that is if you're new to Reliance Fellowship. But we use the Christmas Eve service to celebrate what God, God has given us in Christ. We do a candlelight service, but it is also an opportunity as a church to give to the continuing of the proclamation of the gospel to the, uh, to the, to the, to the rest of the world. And which we know for this year, we have a personal connection to how the IMB is impacting the world around us and Brandon and Lisa being uh, beneficiaries of the Lottie Moon offering. So, um, well, there's a lot that we'll be celebrating over this next month, and I pray that you would integrate your habits and, uh, and uh, traditions with us over these next several weeks. With that, we are going to focus on hope. And so with that said, let me turn in prayer as we consider Jesus, our Messiah. Lord, amongst all the peoples of the world, it was the Jews who had the advantage for you had made them. And not only did you make them even through the wombs that were barren, Sarah, Rebecca. Lord, you have given them the advantage as well to know your law and the promises. But the world that which we recognize to be fallen would not always be so. And it was promised to King David that one would come, a king, and through king, this king, the king of Israel, the whole world would be blessed. And we have come to witness and to know that King Christ Jesus, who has testified of his power and his wisdom and his word and his deed and his ability to conquer death. And now we know where he sits, and we are so thankful for the patience of God which is given to us. And that... You have waited to establish your kingdom, allowing opportunity for those to respond in repentance. But Lord, as a church, as we reflect on the hope set before us on Christ and upon his return, Lord, I pray as we take communion today that we would take it with the fullness of hope that Christ brings us. And even though while a genealogy might sound strange to others, to us we know you have taken it seriously that we might not miss 
who the Messiah is. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with this hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We call them idioms. And with idioms, um, they come with a context in order to understand it. If you don't know the context, the idiom doesn't make sense. Nicole is right, and in my time of teaching at college, I have become increasingly more and more aware. You can't ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? Because there's this context that's behind it that has not been fulfilled or explained. Do you believe in Jesus? Many would might say, yeah. But if you were to extend the statement, do you believe in Jesus, the Messiah? There is this misunderstanding. It's interesting. I ask my students, what is an idiom? And they all get their phones out and they look up on Google and they come up with this explanation. An idiom is a group of words established by a usage as having a meaning not deducible from those of the individual words. An idiom is a group of words established by usage as having a meaning not deducible, deducible from those of the individual words. We use them all the time. Many times we're not even aware of what we're saying when we say them, but they make sense to us because we understand the context which gives them their force. For example, that person is barking up the wrong tree. Or, they made a mountain out of that molehill. If you don't know the context to the idiom, the idiom doesn't make sense. She needs to hold her tongue. Not just she's. He needs to hold his tongue. And if you're understanding of the idiom, it means be silent. For example, for one other, he needs to hold his horses. But every 10 to 12-year-old boy needs to understand he needs to be patient. The funny thing with idioms is once you understand the context of the idiom, then it makes sense. International idioms, because we don't often understand the context to the idiom, it does not make sense. For example, they have tied a bear to someone. The famous German idiom, which means you're fooling someone. My cheeks are falling off. You lived in Japan? It means the food is super delicious. Not all donuts come with a hole. Like, I remember sitting with my friend Jürgen. You probably have heard me say this before. And he had just come to America for the first time. And idioms are super confusing if you're just learning English. Curtain call, the teacher once said. And he leaned over to me and goes, what in the world does that mean? And you've heard this before then you're disappointed in your pastor for not being truthful. And I said to Jürgen, Jürgen, that means that there are empty seats in the first class position on the plane and the students will come out and say, curtain call, and if you're the first person past the curtain, then you get that seat. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> Context helps you understand the idiom. I know that is a dangerous way to explain an idiom, so I quickly, after laughing, told him the truth. Not all donuts come with a hole. Italian idiom. Things do not always come as well as you would like. Idioms are colorful expressions. And when one understands the supporting context for which gives them their force, they make sense. I have found that it is true with not just principles or 
being silent or ways that we communicate, being patient or fulfilling expectation, it also applies to some terms that we use when it comes to theological ideas. There's no cow on the ice. Sweden idiom meaning there's no need to worry. I have been finding in my time here in the Tri-Cities, it's not just those who are outside of the church, but those within the church that have no idea what we mean when we say, do you believe in Jesus, the Messiah? It is an idiom or has become an idiom, meaning it has become a group of words to establish, to communicate this other idea. But the reality is, is that there is no context below it giving its value and force. We come to the table this morning. And when we read in the reading of Matthew this morning, the author has said the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. We take it for granted for those of us who have grown up in the church that we have been year after year after year been given the context to understand the force of those words. I have found that it has taken much longer to explain the gospel because we are inviting people to understand who the person of Jesus Christ is. People will say, I believe in Jesus, as if to suggest, yeah, I believe it existed one day. Verses, do you believe in Jesus, the Messiah, who is the promised one of Israel, through whom all the world will be blessed in light of his rule upon his return? There's this context and this force that gives understanding to the phrase. In fact, when John the Baptist begins his ministry, he had a context when the people were asking him if he was the Messiah, and that because he understood the context, he could refuse it or agree with their questions. John chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And they're expecting a Messiah to come on the scene. There was this context in which Messiah meant something. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Or, translated, Messiah. Again, in John's ministry, John 3, 28, he said, You yourselves know, you are my witnesses, that I said, I am not the Messiah, the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him. We are within the Christmas season and Advent season. And my hope with you this morning is to fill up that phrase, Messiah. So that we understand the force which is pushing this term before the reader. When the reader reads the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Regularly throughout the genealogy, there is this emphasis. Do you not see whom God has promised? And when we help people understand that God has spoken plainly concerning the means by which we can hope in, it strengthens our hope that we have placed our hope in the right place because God has not stuttered. We started our series in June. The reason why I wanted to go through Genesis is to go back to the beginning. 
Matthew chapter 1, you have the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The reason why you have a Messiah, point one, is something happened in the beginning. You guys are familiar with this. We remember in the beginning, God created all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of his creation. And within his creation, you remember, he established someone uniquely within it. I ask my students, where in the world are we? And it's so helpful to understand when we talk about the gospel and that we are within God's creation. And once you understand it, if you're in God's creation, then you understand there's expectation. It's not a foreign concept when we ask each other, when we go to somebody's house, shall I wear my shoes or not? Because when we recognize when we go into somebody's house, we recognize the authority which exists within that house. And in my house, you can wear your shoes. Unless there's mud on them, take them off. But the reality is that in some of their houses, it's not a hard thing for us to do. Oh yeah, I'll take my shoes off. When asked, why do we do this? Because we know that the authority which stands above that house, we submit to. But over all creation, when humanity can answer that simple question, where are we? We are within God's house. And if we are within God's house, then it determines an expectation for how we ought to live. Genesis 1, we've learned this. We recognize that humanity has not fulfilled its role. And that we remember that God uniquely created humanity within his image and his likeness. The role of mankind was to rule. The ruling aspect to it. So strange to me as we look even at our dogs. Why does a dog sit when you tell it to? Why do you even try to train a dog to sit? There's this ruling aspect which God has given humanity over his creation. You don't see dolphins trying to establish their rule over different animals. But humanity has this characteristic. We're unique. We have this ruling aspect, but then we also have this priestly aspect being in the image of God in that we were designed to have a relationship with the owner of the house. So cool. And that we were meant to fellowship with them. And in all that ruling aspect and priestly aspect, we also had this prophetic aspect. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, like, you don't get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 without the Old Testament. You do not get the hope of the Messiah unless it's been filled up with its context. We remember who we were once supposed to be. And we had this prophetic aspect in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The Lord commanded humanity, commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The owner of all creation gets to determine how those live within the house. Eat of the tree that I have not commanded, and you will die. And sadly, in the beginning, before the promise of the Messiah, man 
did not fulfill its role in ruling, its priestly function, or its prophetic responsibility. And that we listen to the serpent. But yet, even in the midst of consequence, and I'm just stirring these things for our reminder. In the midst of the consequence, in Genesis 3.15, remember, the woman will, in light of not obeying God's command, will suffer labor pains. Men will work hard to the point that it kills them. But in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the context of consequence, God being rich in his grace, promised one to come who would redeem humanity's position as ruler, priest, and prophet. And you get to the gap between Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 is significant. But it exists because man has not fulfilled his expectation for those who live within his house. And the hope that we now find and realize in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is that the Old Testament is God's plain clarification or way of speaking to humanity for the one whom you will hope in. Can I just stir our minds in that regard? Point two, God has spoken plainly. What a strange way to start off the New Testament. Matthew is not doing what my students do as if to somehow have to fulfill a seven-page paper, fill it with fluff. No, Matthew records the genealogy because he wants to reveal the force of who this person is. Give the context of who this Messiah is. Because as you have walked with us in Genesis, so fitting I find that we've done this this time of year. We have walked in Genesis 3.15, but we recognize that in light of the promise of one to come to redeem us from our sins, it was to Abraham God showed up. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, God promises, through your family, someone's coming to bless the whole world. Now the Lord said to Abraham, 1 through 3, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. God could have left humanity guessing on whom or through whom the Messiah would come. Would he come out of Israel? Would he come out of Russia? Would he come out of China? Would he come out of America? Through whom will this Messiah come? But God, desiring to speak clearly and plainly, narrowed down the focus of whom that Messiah would come through, specifically to the family of Abraham. And so we learn, he will come forth from Isaac. And we have gone, gone through Genesis. He will come through, believe it or not, 
the immoral, conceited, yet slowly transformed man, Jacob. And even at the end of his life, as we finished last week, in Genesis 35, God appeared and said, verse 11, God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come forth from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And, it, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. If we were to continue on to read, like when we walk through Genesis, I found it so interesting that God has always been faithful to his promises. Abraham, you're going to have a son. Wife's barren. God produces life. Rebecca, barren. 20 years, God produces life. God said what he was going to do. And to Jacob, as he is about to finish with his own life, God promises, not only will the nation explode from you, but from you, kings. And if you were to read the Old Testament, it comes true. God's promises came to its fulfillment. And you see King David. He establishes the kingdom of Israel in such a profound way there is peace on every corner. And at the end of his life, God continues to reveal the hope set before the whole world. In 2 Samuel 7.13, he says this, The one who comes, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Striking, like all that information, as tedious as it might be to hear it, fills up Matthew 1.1. The record of genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it should not remain for those of us who count ourselves followers of Jesus, the Messiah, to keep this as an idiom. There's context and there's force. Thousands, thousands of years of God's promises that God purposely made man to rule, to be his priestly representation to the rest of the world and to proclaim his voice and his wisdom before all creation. And so you see, even in the promises, kings, priestly function, we read about the tabernacle. How does man have fellowship with God? Or even the idea of the Old Testament prophetic ministry. In Moses' life, he was one who faithfully represented the wisdom of God. And in Deuteronomy 18.15, he says, someone's coming. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Like me, from among you, nation of Israel, for your countrymen, you shall listen to him. When we talk about the gospel, and when we ask people, do you believe in Jesus? What we mean is, do you believe in the one who's been promised to Israel, who was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, who will be king, who is king, who is 
one who will rule over all creation. He will rightly fulfill the priestly rule for humanity. And he will be the very words of God for us to live by and follow. He's Lord. There's a context which forces the identity of who Jesus is and whom we hope. What boggles my mind is why is it that so many will not believe? For the discipline which God has used throughout all history to to make it plain on whom you hope in is abundant. The Messiah doesn't show up randomly designated to the people of Israel of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. He was to come from a particular people, from a specific people, and if that was not enough, God was even clearer than that. In that he said, specifically, when he comes, Isaiah 7.14, you can have this expectation as the prophet proclaimed. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'll make it plain. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The reason for the genealogy which you read in Matthew is that, that if Jesus was to be the Messiah, he ought to be of the right family. And Mary, Mary being of the right family, we are reminded of this prophetic promise, Matthew 1, 21. Joseph, seeing Mary concerned that she was a virgin, somehow pregnant, he was going to divorce her silently. In Matthew 21, God intervenes and says to Joseph, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place. To fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which is translated, which translated means God with us. I'm not the only one that does this. My children do it as well. And so as well as my wife. And I don't think it's uncommon to my own family. Are we hoping in the right person? And God knows that the wisdom of man needs the assurance. Yeah. You have put your faith in the right Messiah. In that he comes from Abraham. He came from Isaac and Judah and David. He came from the virgin birth. God has spoken plainly. And if that was not Spoken clear enough, even his birthplace was predetermined by God through the prophets. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. When the wise men come to see Herod and they ask, where is the one who is born king, this Messiah? 
They don't have to go back and say, well, let me go look at the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. And they said to him in Matthew 2, 5, 6, the designation of the place of the Messiah to be born is in Bethlehem of Judah. For this has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, the one to redeem humanity from their fallen position, who will shepherd my people, Israel. So not only does the family, like, I find it so helpful to stir these things, even in this season, amongst all people. Imagine, there are people pursuing Christianity without the context, without the force of its celebration. And Christmas stripped of all of its glory is empty. The prophets prophesied that a prophet would be positioned before the Messiah's ministry began. And this is why John the Baptist became so significant. And I said to him in John chapter 1, 22, I've already read it. Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. The one promised long ago to come. I am here. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. God has spoken plainly concerning the one whom you hope in. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Through whom all scriptures proclaim. Like I could go on and on and on. But for the sake of time, I could not go through all of the prophecies concerning him. You don't have to search. God has spoken clearly. And that's why we can come to communion with confidence. There's this hope that we have. Like the virgin birth, like that's crazy that that would be predicted. And the fact that Matthew has to, no, not has to, but that he includes it. Knowing the shame that others might perceive of it. That that never happens, yet he still does it. Why? Because God has spoken plainly concerning the one whom you might hope in. The one thing that even those when he the Messiah came, that they could not grasp was how the Messiah would walk. And that he would suffer. And God spoke clearly even then, even to Joseph, Matthew 1, 21. When he comes, he's going to suffer. But in his suffering, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. In fact, halfway through each of the Gospels, when the disciples are asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? They could have said, you're Jesus. He said, you are Jesus the Christ. Jesus responding, yes, it's true. Don't tell anyone. Goes on to tell them, this Messiah will suffer. And hoping to speak as plainly as God has always spoken, 
Jesus said in Mark 8, 31 through 32. I know this might sound like I am throwing a lot of passages at you. That's the point. God has spoken clearly through his word. And when our, as a people, we forget to read the way that he has spoken, the context and the force of the term Messiah loses its meaning. It needs to be filled up. And when we fill up that idea of the promised Messiah and the hope that we have, and it only gives us confidence to go speak with those who have not heard of the Messiah. Concerning his suffering, he began to teach them. Look at this. Matthew 8.31 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He doesn't stutter, does he? He knows clearly what is expected of the Messiah. And so as to remove all doubt, Mark writes, and he stated the matter plainly. The Messiah who came to rule be the priestly function for all humanity and the prophetic voice for us to understand the wisdom of God said these things clearly. In fact, Peter, he struggled with it. When they came to arrest him, what did Peter do? He cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers or servants. Jesus cautions him and says in Matthew 26, 54, how will the scriptures be fulfilled? Which say that it must happen this way. Matthew 1, 1. It seems such just a strange way to start a New Testament, but it's loaded with context. And just like an idiom works, when the context is understood, it gives color to the understanding of what we're trying to say. When do we say, do you believe in Jesus the Messiah? The challenge that we, ha we have in our day is to have the time and patience to work with people to explain the promises of God in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Who is he? And Jesus knew all along who he was. Can I just remind you, even before his suffering, he stayed silent amongst all the false testimonies. But when the high priest stood before him, he lost, he finally says this in Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Messiah that God has spoken plainly of? And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew who he was. And he believed that he fulfilled all the promises given plainly to humanity to hope in. It is as you say. 
God doesn't stutter. The Messiah doesn't stutter. The ones who stutter are the ones who are trying to discern who he is. We can believe he existed, but do we believe who he said he was? I've only unraveled a few of these things. When I come to the Christmas season, why do I have hope? God has done what he said he would do. He came forth from a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was from the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. He has fulfilled all the teachings which God had required him, faithfully representing him in all areas. And we read his teachings even in Matthew. The crowds were amazed. For he taught with, as one with authority. He fulfilled the role as king. Demonstrating he had authority. Not just over sicknesses. But over the winds and the waves. Over all creation. And not only did he demonstrate his ability to rule. But the priestly function. And that he suffered. And atoned for our sins. Providing the means for us to have a right relationship with him. And so in light of that hope, three, which is the theme of the day, I would love to take communion with you as a family recognizing who Jesus the Messiah is. He's a king of Israel who has promised that he has atoned for our sins and he will establish his kingdom for all those who believe in him. Consider with me Matthew 26. Before he atoned for your sins, Sitting around the disciples, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus believed he was the Messiah who was the fulfillment of all Israel's promises through whom who would redeem humanity from the curse and establish the garden for all eternity for us to enjoy our rule our priestly function, and the prophetic ministry under his authority. When we ask, and when we take, who is Jesus? He's Lord of the house. He's our king, he's our priest, he's our prophet. And how would I take communion? In light of Christmas coming up, consider how God has spoken plainly in his scripture. And consider how do you rightly respond to him reverently? When you come to my house, you take your shoes off, off I ask. But when Christ demonstrated his authority as Lord over all things, he has asked us in light of his word many things. And the hope that we have in Christ is that we recognize that he has forgiven us, but then there's this, this, this obligation to honor him in that position as our Messiah. If you haven't responded to the Messiah, I wouldn't take the table because it's not for you. 
It is for those who have received Jesus as their Messiah and profess that faith through baptism. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, what a joy it is that we don't have to guess concerning the one whom we get to hope in. But Lord, as we reflect in the Messiah, in, in his teaching, and in his authority, and in the wisdom in which he provided us, Lord, we are thankful that you have loved this world so much that you gave your only son. And that to those who believe in him, they shall not perish, but be given eternal life. We are thankful for the promised king of Israel. And we look forward to his return. But Lord, as we wait, I pray that even as citizens of that kingdom to come, Lord, that we would be faithful to the standard which he has given us in the present time. So Lord, some of us will take this communion in hope. Some of us will take it in repentance. But wherever we're at, Lord, we come knowing where all of our hopes rise and that you're the one who forgives us restores us and fulfills the standard which we've fallen short to accomplish. Lord, as we wait to take it together, Lord, I pray that you would be honored by our remembrance of the hope which we have in Jesus, the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I have the ushers come forward?